Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged wastrel playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. My name is H.J. Doom and this is another bonus episode made possible by the generosity of a few kind souls on Patreon. This is a timely bonus episode too because I need to say a big thank you to Saul Alexander, a new patron. Thanks Saul, your help supports the podcast and it keeps me well supplied with old game books to play. If you'd like to be like Saul, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and pledging as little as a single English pound. This episode is also brought to you by my co-host Richard from the horror podcast Bella Lugosi's Shed. Rich has sent me a very intriguing little book entitled The Curse of Frankenstein, an adventure game book based on the novel by Mary Shelley, which proudly describes itself on the cover as a blood-curdling game book where you can play Frankenstein or his gruesome monster. And that's complete with a very evocative cover that uh, references the classic universal horror design for the creature to an extent that it's a wonder they weren't sued. And the title is also the same as the wonderful, albeit loose, 1957 Hammer adaptation of Frankenstein. So you're getting two copyright infringements for the price of one. The book was written by J.H. Brennan, who you may remember from the pleasantly bonkers Grail Quest book we covered a while back. It was released in 1986 by Armada Book, with internal illustrations by Tim Sell. There's also a picture of a brain in a jar on the back cover which absolutely delights me for some reason. I guess I just really like a brain in a jar. Without any further ado, let's dive into The Curse of Frankenstein. Okay, so the system is relatively straightforward. You have Five stats, speed, courage, strength, skill, sigh. And the author tells us that speed, courage, strength and skill are pretty obvious. And that sigh is a measure of the character's wild talents. That is, his or her ability to do weird things like reading minds. So uh, it's 1d6 down the line for all of these stats. So uh, my character has a speed of six, a courage of six, but a strength of two and a skill of two and a sigh of five. You get 100 life points and you heal three each time you go to a new section. You can do healing as well. Combat involves first finding out who goes first by adding your speed and courage to 1d6 and doing the same for your opponent. And then you take it in turns to try and whack each other about the face and body with rolling two dice. Score of a six or more equals a hit and the amount you beat that six by is added to your strength and your skill to give your total damage. Uh, you can run away, you can heal, and you've got Psy Talents, which you can uh, use as many times as you've got Psy Points, and thereafter you can spend life to use your Psy Talents as well. Uh, you can play either the Monster or the Good Doctor. I will be playing the Doctor on this occasion, I think, because I don't want to spoil Creature of Havoc, which we'll be covering in a much later episode of the main podcast and also if you want to play yourself i want to leave you the option of playing 
the creature, which sounds as though it might just be a little bit more fun. The other element we need to talk about is the slightly strange way in which the book is organised. So you have both location sections and action sections. So at the start of each bit of the book, you get a sequence of locations and various different actions can take place within those sections. So you get the description of the area once and you might need to refer back to it during the action bits. Kind of an interesting way of doing it. Uh, I've never thought of doing that before, but we'll see whether it works. Uh, I think it might be a bit of a challenge to podcast because, well, if I go back and start rereading the location sections to remind myself that's going to get old for you fast, but we'll play it by ear. We will see what happens. So let's dive into The Curse of Frankenstein, which begins with some extracts from the diary of her Dr. Baron Victor Frankenstein, which I discovered in the ruins of Schwarzstein Castle in late autumn 1985, 15th January. The creature has escaped. I am distraught. I had thought him securely confined, but he has grown stronger even than I had imagined. The massive iron chains which held him to the wall are snapped like twine. The fetters which encased his wrists and ankles lie twisted and broken on the stone-flagged floor. The great studded oak door has been ripped from its hinges and flung across the chamber with such violence that it has literally shattered into fragments. And the creature is gone. He may have injured himself in some small degree when breaking free, for spots of drying blood have left a trail along the gloomy corridor and up the winding staircase which gives exit from the dungeons. By following this trail with diligence and piecing together several small clues along the way, I was able to conclude what must have happened. I mean, it seems as though what happened is the creature snapped his chains, kicked the door down and absconded. We'll see what, what the good doctor has to... Uh, say about this fairly conclusive chain of evidence. The creature. My monstrous creation, having broken free from the chains and shackles which restrained him, and having further assaulted the door of his cell with such ferocity, proceeded along the corridor and climbed the staircase, leading to the warren of passages which comprise the ground floor of the castle itself. It appears the monster found his way to the kitchens, and there encountered my wolfhounds, both of whom I discovered this morning dead, their backs broken. They hated the creature, of course, and in all probability attacked it. It is plain the monster sought me, his creator, for the trail next led to the upper stories and passed within a few feet of the chamber in which I lay sleeping. Yet the creature did not enter, and for that I thank God, for I would surely have been torn limb from limb. Instead, the monster continued upwards, emerging eventually on the battlements overlooking the lake. From thence he jumped, as I thought, to his death. But I was mistaken, for although a leap such as this would have slain any mortal, when I searched for the body at the lakeside, I discovered unmistakable signs that, having plunged from the battlements into the dark waters, he subsequently emerged at a spot near the pine woods, and hence followed a path out of my estate. There is an illustration of the monster jumping off the battlements and um, I might be being a little bit unkind when I say he looks remarkably like Mario doing a jump in the early Super Mario games. There's a definite video game static pose to how he's jumping which I find irresistibly charming. It also appears that one of his legs is considerably shorter than the other. Either that, or he is so very, very wide 
I mean, ridiculously wide. So that the the leg furthest from us is is a considerable distance further away than it would normally appear. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say he's got one leg considerably shorter than the other. 22nd January. The death of the Watchman, and I have never seen a more gruesome corpse, convinces me that the monster has for some time made a home in the docks, surviving easily enough in that lawless warren of alleys and warehouses where such little sustenance as he requires may be stolen without difficulty. Is the Dockland still his home? This I beg leave to question. The talk here is not of the dead watchman, gory though the murder was, but rather of the ship, which docked here for supplies and took on board something, some thing, which appeared on no document. That this was the creature I created, I have no doubt. The ship is the vessel of an expedition of exploration and scientific discovery bound northwards to the polar regions. I had sailed before I had the opportunity to alert its master to the dreadful cargo he carried. But I shall pursue the ship, for the monster is my responsibility and mine alone. It is the curse of Frankenstein, and only Victor Frankenstein can lay it. So that's our introduction. I quite like that. That's uh, clearly inspired by the book but deviating from it significantly and setting up a game of cat and mouse between the monster and its unfortunate creator. So we begin in the polar regions. It is chill. More chill than you ever remember. The cold insinuates itself into your clothing and leeches what small warmth remains in your body. Your limbs are stiff and sore with the cold, swollen in your imagination to twice their normal size. You look out across a barren wasteland, icescape, snowscape beneath a lowering sky. Against a background of a wind that howls incessantly like souls in torment, flurries of snow herald the next inevitable storm. Never have you felt so alone. You close your eyes remembering and your memories are as barren as this ghastly place. Destruction. Death. Murder. The long sea voyage locked in with your own dire thoughts and now this icy hell on earth. How did it happen? Who are you that the gods of fate should seek to punish you so severely? So another nice bit of pleasantly overwritten purple prose, which uh, I think is an entirely reasonable tone to set for this kind of gothic melodrama. So if we are the monster created by Victor Frankenstein, we go to Act 1. If you're Frankenstein himself, turn to Act 2. So we go to Act 2, which takes place in the trackless wastes. So... I'm going to read you the description of the trackless waste, and we must remember this, uh, or do our best to remember this, for the action sequence. All around you, the snowfall stretches to eternity, a freezing desolation relieved only by a relentless wind. Uh, nice and straightforward. And now the action section. Your keen eyes flicker restlessly across the icy, barren wasteland. Out there somewhere is the creature you created in the polar regions, waiting watching, endlessly seeking to destroy the man who gave him birth. He is the monster, and that man is you, Baron Victor Frankenstein, scientist, surgeon, and inventor. It was you who conceived the hellish idea of making a living creature by sewing together bits and pieces from corpses. 
It was you who harnessed the lightning to animate the end result. It was you who voiced the dread cry, Abra Cadaver, as the monster climbed off its slab and tried to take you by the throat. See, I feel as though Abra Cadaver, while being quite a fun pun, kind of undercuts the tone of gothic horror that the book's done a pretty decent job of setting. That was your first intimation something might have gone wrong. Since then, your life has been totally devoted to hunting down and destroying the horrid creature, and now at last you have tracked it down to the Arctic. But before you proceed with your quest, you should know a little more about Victor Frankenstein, specifically about his psi abilities and the few possessions he may take with him across the Arctic snow. As Victor, your psi powers are A. Mad science B. Monster making C. Body armour Okay, so mad science is a particularly interesting and unusual psi-ability, we are told, the results of which are unpredictable. So you expend the relevant psi-points, throw one dice, and you can get an exciting variety of results, which I'm not going to spoil. I'm going to keep them to myself. Um, Some of them are really good. Some of them are not so good. Uh, Monster-making is a lesser version of the talent which got you into your present mess. You can make a little monster which has 25 life points and average stats all threes which will fight to the death on your behalf that's kind of cool body armor is a defensive psi power which halves any damage scored against you in a given combat it must be used afresh in each combat faced so i'm going to note those down we also get the option to pick six items from the following list Ice pick, rope, 50 feet. Pen knife, bottle of vintage wine. The Manchester Guardian, bottle of laudanum. Box of matches, warm socks, tent, pith, helmet, mallet, one pound of nails. Six of those. I feel as though rope and ice pick are a given. Um, We'll go for the tent. We'll go for the warm socks. And we'll go for the mallet. Never know when you might be called upon to play whack-a-mole in the trackless, fathomless wastes of the frigid Arctic. I was instantly tempted by the bottle of laudanum. Actually, the laudanum restores quite a lot of life points. I will... I'll abandon the mallet and replace it with a bottle of laudanum. So now, remaining in the trackless wastes, uh, where one direction looks much like any other, we can go south-west I know we can go north, south, east or west. We can go in any direction we want. So um, it's a bit rubbish to come to the Arctic and not visit the North Pole. So let's go north. Something large is moving up ahead. You stop, then cautiously inch forward in the hope of getting a better view. The creature silhouettes briefly, leaving you with the impression of a massively built man. And whatever it is, it does not appear to have seen you and is moving away northwards. So we can follow it, we can go east, or we can go west. So let's follow the monster, if we can. You follow the creature for what seems like miles, before it tops a rise and disappears from view down the other side. Anxious not to lose it, you increase your speed. In moments you too have topped the rise. And discovered the creature is waiting for you. So the possible good news is that it isn't your monster, just a bad-tempered polar bear anxious to tear you limb from limb. 
I see the sort of conversational chatty style that J.H. Brennan used for the Grail Quest books is still very much in place. So the uh, bear has a speed of three and a courage of five. So it's slower than me. And a strength of six and a skill of three. It's considerably tougher than me. Zero sigh and 45 life points. Okay, I am going to immediately because I'm a bit afraid of the damage potential of this bear, I'm immediately going to generate a little monster to uh, do my fighting for me. I think I'd have vaguely learned my lesson from the first monster, but apparently I have not. So, uh, a little mini-me, I'm choosing to call Vicky Frank, will be fighting for me, and then assuming that the mini-me is destroyed, then I'm going to have to fight the polar bear myself. Regardless, I am going to roll some dice. So between us, uh, the Baron and Vicky Frank have taken out the bear. I expected the polar bear to absolutely demolish my mini-me, but in fact the mini-me did a huge amount of damage to it, leaving the Baron to just issue the coup de grace. So yeah, I have taken no actual damage, although let's pour one out for Vicky Frank, who has tragically succumbed to the polar bear. Uh, I think it's how it would have wanted to go. So uh, we can continue travelling north, we can go south, west or east, and there's no real indication of which of these, so we might as well continue going north. Aha! Come to a new location, which is the Ice Mountains. Rising high above you to the north is a mountain range conceived in hell. The lower slopes are covered in the eternal ice, but higher up the ice has disappeared to reveal grim, grey, naked rock, while higher still seethes the dull glow of volcanic fires. The smell of sulphur is everywhere, even here in the lower regions, and the sweep of snow at the base of this lowering range is dusted with a fine layer of ash. The mountains rumble and groan like an agonised giant, filling the air with sound. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is not a pleasant place to be spending time. You find the place immediately oppressive, threatening. Even here in the lowlands, waves of heat roll down intermittently from the great grumbling volcanic mountaintops like putrid avalanches of sulphur fumes. Every instinct you possess urges you to return from whence you came, to flee from the danger these mountains undoubtedly represent. There's a picture of the mountains. I mean, they're very, very cartoonish. They're very, very cartoonish. They they look like something out of the clangers, if I'm briefly honest. Not the artist's best work. So um, one thing is that there's an interesting element with these action scenes where you get um, the section in, in ordinary type and then you get a section in italics, which is sort of letting you know what your options are. And sometimes, as in this case, also giving you a comment on the options. I'm not quite sure why that was needed, but I guess it helps you draw your eye to uh, the actual decision-making bit. Every instinct tells us to flee, and yet mountains such as this could be the very place where the foul monster you created would seek to hide. However, the decision is always yours. 
you may retreat south from the mountains, southeast or southwest, but if you wish to search these hellish mountains, you may begin your climb. I'm going to take a powder on the mountains, I think. I'm going to say discretion is the better part of valour. Now then, I would like to take a left turn, I think. So I want to go east. I'm facing south, so I want to go east if I want to take a left turn. So to the left we go. We are back in the trackless wastes. I don't think I need to particularly remind you of what that is like given that it was one sentence. This part of the wasteland is even more impassable than usual, with rocks and chasms blocking your way in several different directions. You may, however, go northeast, or go south, or northwest. I suddenly realised something about the healing rules, which is that uh, from this position in the trackless wastes, had we got any damage, we're actually technically still at full life, we could just run back to the mountains, and then run from the mountains back here, and just keep running between the two until we were completely healthy. Yep, that's a, a good health tip, isn't it? If, you, uh, if you've been badly injured in a fight, running a marathon, absolutely the best thing you can do. So from here, we can go... Well, we're not going to run around in circles, because this is already tedious. We're not going to run around in circles. We are going to go south, I guess. Uh, try and find a way to go west again. Not much to hold your attention here, and no sign of any passing monster, so you press on swiftly. So we can go west from here, and west we will go. Not much you can do here, except keep going. This is great podcasting material. But in which direction? North, south, west, east. Uh, we'll go west again. The relentless chill is beginning to gnaw into your very bones, but you persevere, driven on by the clear light of your mission. Uh, so we will go west again. The going is difficult here, so that you find yourself restricted in choice of direction. So we can go south, east, or southeast. So I guess we've found one limit of this area, so we might as well go south. From somewhere distant, the wind carries a hint of the smell of the sea, but you are unable to determine from exactly which direction. You can either go north, south, southeast, east, northeast, southwest, or west. So we've got plenty of choice, and we're going to go south. There is a huge footprint in the snow. Your monster, or something else. You bend to examine the print, and something attacks you viciously from behind. You are not, in caps, being attacked by whatever left the footprint, but by something much worse. A polar raise. Rise. It's R-E-I-Z, answers on a postcard. Riz. Riz. Unknown to natural science and hinted at only in the darkest legend, the Riz is a six-legged snow-white cross between a lion and an ox with sabre teeth, a trailing mane and heavily clawed forelegs. The stats of this Riz are... Speed, 6. Courage, 6. Strength, 6. Skill, 4. Psy, 1. It has 70 life points, and its Psy ability is instant death, uh, which it will use on a throw of 12 to consign you immediately to death. So, since it attacked you from behind, it gets the first blow by reason of surprise. I imagine I'm going to die. But uh, we've got to roll some dice to find out precisely how quickly I'm going to die. So, I'll tell you what, I will 
try and use my mad science to uh, sort myself out. So we throw one die for the mad science at a cost of one psi point and see what happens. Let's see if we can get a, a decent outcome. I roll a six. That's usually good. Ah, six causes a violent chemical explosion in your vicinity. You must throw the dice again. On a one to four inclusive, your enemy is utterly destroyed. A one. Yep, yep, the enemy is utterly destroyed by my mad science. What a good idea that was. So we're not going to pause to roll some dice. We're going to just carry on. You stare down at the bizarre corpse, wondering where you ever found the strength and stamina to kill it. Well, I didn't. I found some explosives to kill it. Towards the end of the fight, when it was obvious that you had the upper hand, the Riz tried to flee northwestward, a difficult direction to move in given the immediate geography. Why then did the creature try and head that way? If you're really curious, you can try going northwest yourself, but since this may lead only to a den of Rizzi, I, you might be better off travelling west, north, east, northeast, or southeast. Okay, well we'll I think we'll go and follow it to the to the lair. Yeah, we'll follow it maybe to its lair and we come to Ooh, a new location. Oh, this is exciting. The trapped ship. Looming above you is the metal side of a great ship held fast from bows almost stern by the encroaching ice. The air is filled with metallic sighs and creaks as the pressure of the ice field varies with the movements of the chill polar waters far below. You can see no activity on deck and the portholes stare down on you like blind eyes. Some twenty feet away, however, is a frost-encrusted rope ladder hung from the main deck and ending no more than three feet above the ice field. So let's go to the action one. Is this the ship in which you came? The cold has obviously begun to gnaw away important centres of your brain, for you cannot remember. Nothing about the great trapped bulk is even vaguely familiar. But whether you remember or not, you are still faced with an immediate decision whether or not to try and board the ship. You walk around it cautiously, craning upwards, but there is no indication of any life aboard. Which leaves you at make your mind up time, the author tells us. Do you want to risk that frozen rope ladder? I definitely do, because the alternative is wandering the trackless wastes at random, trying to find something to kill me. So, uh, yeah, this, this excites me quite a lot, this ship, because it is a self-contained location I will be able to explore. We're on to a new location on deck. The great ship is trapped in a northeast-southwestern line. Amidships is a large trapdoor, while another smaller lies to the stern. Forward, two flights of wooden steps lead to the bridge and foxel. Between them is a wooden doorway. The ship has that silent, eerie feel of a totally deserted vessel, a sort of ice-bound Mary Celeste. More sinister still, there are some indications of violence here. A broken belaying pin, a smashed lifeboat, which leave you even more uneasy. Despite your unease, you may elect to explore this deserted vessel. I think we will explore the deserted vessel. We're still on deck. Your decision made. You glance around to determine which part of the ship you are going to explore first. So we've got the trapdoor, the stern, the wooden door. 
So let's try the wooden door and work our way down, I think. You see, this is a proper spooky thing, uh, a ship trapped in the ice with all the crew missing. I like this a lot. Aha, we are now in the cabin corridor. The doorway opens onto a narrow stairway which leads in turn into a cabin corridor with a series of partly open doorways on either side. I really do feel as though that could have just been in the action bit. Cautiously, you edge forward, listening intently, but you can hear nothing. You reach the first door and push it gently open. Taking a deep breath, you look inside. It is an empty cabin, large enough to sleep four cruisemen, but sparsely furnished and lacking anything of interest to you. You move on, never once losing your caution. But door after door reveals nothing other than crew cabins. You could waste a lot of time down here. If you decide to call it a day, you can go back on deck and explore elsewhere or leave the ship. Alternatively, should you wish to continue exploring these cabins, you can. Well, I'm going to continue exploring these cabins. Aha, the captain's cabin. The cabin is well-appointed and clean, filled with the pervasive smell of wax polish on wood. A cabinet of charts and rum clings to one wall, while near the door is a globe indicating the more important sea routes. On the table is spread a large chart of the Arctic regions, weighed down by rural T-square and sextant. I do hope we get an opportunity to drink the rum. An examination of that chart reveals something of exceptional interest. The map, while accurately indicating the contours of the coastline and several inland features, dissolves into a fantasy by showing a city named as Xanthine to the east. Since a city in the Arctic wasteland is obviously ridiculous, you might easily have dismissed the importance of this one had you not noticed a smudged fingerprint in the same area which you recognise instantly as belonging to the forefather of the late Dean of Canterbury, whose hand you transplanted onto your monster. Does this indicate that the monster is even now hiding out in some lost city? Even if the city does not exist, the monster whose transplanted brain functions quite slowly at times may have believed it did and headed eastward in a vain attempt to find it. Either way, the map and the fingerprint may be a vital clue. I mean, it's not entirely clear where precisely in the Arctic region this is supposed to take place because, of course, the polar ice is just that, ice. There's no mountains and there's no rock underneath it. It's just water with ice on. So we have to assume that we're in Canada, perhaps? I mean, I guess there's a few places. It could be Russia would also do. But anyway, I think this this incredibly obvious clue is is a tremendous boon to the aimlessly wandering Dr. Baron Victor Frankenstein. And so, yeah, we go back to the previous one and we review our options. So we're back on deck. I feel as though anything we find in the ship other than that is likely to be a significant problem rather than a significant help. Yeah, we'll go east from this spooky be-iced vessel. From somewhere distant, we're back in the trackless wastes. From somewhere distant, the wind carries a hint of the smell of the sea, but you are unable to determine from exactly which direction. So, we will go east. Trouble, Victor. There's a wolf here. Just one, fortunately, rather than a whole pack. But you are so surprised to find the animal so far north that you might as well be faced by a thousand of the beasts. Wolf stats are speed 5, courage 5, strength 4, skill 3, sigh, nil, and 25 life points. 
So we will fight the wolf, I think. Yeah, I think we can fight the wolf. I will let you know afterwards if I have to resort to any of my shenanigans. My psi shenanigans. I'm going to roll some dice. Okay, I have killed the starving wolf. I was reduced to uh, the low 80s in health, but I ran backwards and forwards between two sections until I got back up to 100, because that's totally allowed. We can move onwards, so we continue moving east. Relentlessly, you trudge onwards. Okay, we continue trudging east. The going is a little more difficult here and your options more limited than usual. You can only go west, south, southwest, or northwest. I guess south. Oh, I can go northeast. Uh, we'll go, go northeast. Continue going east. Not much to hold your attention here and no sign of any passing monster, so you press on swiftly. The going becomes more difficult with rocky outcrops blocking your way in several directions. Go north or east, I'm beginning to lose the will to go in any direction, I have to confess. Up ahead is the monster. The looming shape with the bolt through the neck is absolutely unmistakable. With a strangled cry, you hurl yourself forward, determined to do battle, determined to rid the world forever of this foul creation, and find yourself half drowning in a snowdrift. As you gasp for air and struggle to free yourself, you can see that what you took to be the monster is no more than a snowman in the monster's image. The creature is growing more cunning, hence more dangerous. You will have to be extra careful from now on, assuming, of course, that you get out of this drift alive. Okay, so uh, uh, we get to throw two dice. Below three, you drown. Three to six, you freeze. Seven to twelve, you scrabble out again. So, are we going to live or die? Nine, we are going to live. We continue going east. Ooh, we've emerged from the trackless wastes. And we are at the crystalline ridge. Ooh. Now, this bizarrely does not appear to be a location we can look at elsewhere. It's just given location, world's end. You stop dumbstruck ahead to the east, but running north and south as far as the eye can see is a high ridge of what appears to be purest fire diamonds, throwing back the light in reflective shards and creating dancing rainbows everywhere. That it is a natural phenomenon, you have no doubt, but it is like nothing you have ever seen or heard before. You push forward wondering if this could be some form of bizarre glacier, but when you reach the ridge itself you quickly discover the huge crystals are not ice, nor diamond either, more's the pity, but quartz. So we can cross the ridge, or travel north or south along it, looking for an easier crossing, or trek west. Well, I think we will uh, we'll trek south a bit and see if there's an easier crossing. An exhausted hour later, you conclude that your attempts to cross the ridge here are absolutely doomed to failure. It represents an impassable barrier for anything other than a bird. Of course... There may be a crossing north or some eastern route. I'll try east then. An exhausted hour later, you conclude your attempts to cross the ridge here are absolutely doomed to failure. It represents an impassable barrier for anything other than a bird. Okay, we will try north. And we get the same issue. So that's fun. That's meaningful decision making. Banging my head against three separate brick walls. 
or quartz walls as the case may be. Uh, so yeah, we can go west, fine. <laughs> of course, by going west, what happens is that we then fall into the exact same trap that we fell into moments ago and are back in the snowdrift. It not giving us any option. Yeah, there's no option to avoid that. So we, for reasons that are absolutely baffling, see the same snowman built by the creature hurl ourselves on it and find ourselves half drowning in a snowdrift. What happens on this occasion? Do we uh, survive? We don't deserve to survive. It's getting harder and harder to believe this is the same man who usurped the powers of God itself in order to make a creature in his own image. But hey-ho, ten we survive. So uh, I guess we'll go northwest. We're at a rock formation, uh, which is also unmapped. Your way is blocked by a towering rock formation where volcanic forces have distorted rock into delicately twisted towers and minarets which claw their way upwards like some granite mosque transported bodily from warmer climes. From this point you can go south, east, southwest, and you can explore the rock formation if you wish. Well, I do wish. I very much wish to explore the rock formation. Once within the formation, the impression of an Arabian Nights environment increases so that you feel almost no surprise when your foot knocks over the battered remnant of an ancient brass oil lamp of distinctly Middle Eastern design. You bend down to pick it up. Apart from a broken handle, the lamp seems sound enough. But what is it doing here, so far from the burning desert kingdom where it was so obviously made? Do you wish to rub the lamp? Or do you wish to continue to explore the formation? I feel if I rub the lamp and a genie comes out, I feel the horror vibe will have gone completely. I don't think there's any coming back from Victor von Frankenstein's adventures with the magic lamp. I think the next section would have to be a closely contested fist fight with Widow Twanky. So, uh, well, we're going to rub the lamp. Obviously, we're going to rub the lamp. And indeed, J.F. Brennan is now going to lampshade my comments by opening with this is ludicrous you are not a character in a pantomime you are baron victor frankenstein scientist and monster maker extraordinaire yet here you are in the middle of nowhere busily polishing a battered old oil lamp like some superstitious shepherd on the shores of the dead sea what a stupid occupation what did you expect to happen anyway? Do you honestly think smoke will start to pour out of the lamp and coalesce into a huge green-skinned genie out of the Arabian Nights? Do you even imagine remotely that... Hello? There's smoke beginning to pour out of the lamp. You stop rubbing at once, but it makes no difference to the smoke which curls upwards in a spreading, whirling cloud. Perhaps it was the heat generated by your rubbing which triggered combustion of some... Fuel remnants inside? There must be a scientific expert. The smoke is beginning to coalesce into a green-skinned genie, turbaned, heavily bearded, and carrying a scimitar, exactly like a nightmare illustration from the Arabian Nights. There is an illustration of the genie. It is low end of mediocre, I would say, and the high end of racially insensitive. The creature bows. Your wish is my command, illustrious one, it begins. Good, you say, ever the opportunist. What I want is... But the towering giant interrupts. Provided, of course, you can defeat me in battle. 
I do feel as though there's a certain basic insanity to J.H. Brennan, which he can keep under wraps for only so long. And it sort of builds up in him like a geezer of nonsense. And this is the point at which that geezer has just exploded out of him. He's been sat there going, I see wastelands, I see wastelands, wolves, um, cold boats, and uh, I've got to have a genie in this. I must have a genie in this. And so here we are. Do we really want to go head to head with this brute? It inquires. Yeah, we're going to fight the genie. We're going to fist fight a genie who the illustration tells us is armed with um, a sign knife and a scimitar. So uh, you remove your jacket and roll up your sleeves. You're on, you say. This is not going to be easy. The genie has 50 life points and speed. Three, courage, five, strength, six, skill, four, psi, five. And he'll use psi every second strike to double the damage he scores against you. So I've still got some psi left. So I'm going to do... I could do a mad science at him, couldn't I? Okay. Yeah, I'm going to do a mad science at him. See what happens. Like He's got a pair of bladed weapons. I've got my fists. I think this is a reasonable trade. So psi now down to two. Come on, six. Six! <laughs> I'm going to explode a genie. Three on the other one. Okay, so, yeah. The genie comes at me and doesn't even get a chance to strike me because I have exploded him. That's delightful. As you eliminate the last of the genie's life points, the creature dissolves into massive smoke cloud, which in turn runs like water back to the opening of the lamp. You stare at it momentarily, then rub it briskly. The smoke emerges as before, once again coalescing into the towering green-skinned figure. Your wish is my command, O oh illustrious one, it says, provided, of course, you are prepared to fight me. Hey, just a minute, you protest. We've been through all that. Be that as it may, remarks the genie. It is in my nature that once I emerge from the lamp, I have to fight something. If there are enemies here, I should certainly wade in on your behalf. As matters stand, however, it has to be you, otherwise I'm... Freed of that stupid lamp forever, he hesitates. However, since you put up such a good show last time, I'm prepared to enter into this fight with one hand tied behind my back. So, it seems you can use the genie as a sort of guard dog if you only rub the lamp when you want to unleash him on your enemies. But since you rub the lamp now, when there are no enemies about, you have to fight him again. Do you want to do it again? Or do you figure you better not in a weakened state? I'm going to fight him again. I'm, I'm becoming increasingly determined that one way or another I'm getting my hands on this, this genie. So, he said it would tie one hand behind its back. Apparently it's got the same stats as before, so I guess I will use my another side point to try and mad science him again. I mean, admittedly I'm looking for three sixes, but it's a three. What does that do? Okay, 25 points of damage. It creates an electrical arc which hits the genie 25 points of damage. I'll take that. He's down to 25. I'm at 100. I'm going to roll some dice. So, um, the genie did in fact successfully beat me to death. This is a shame. I got it down to five life points, but uh, those double damages, they start to stack really quickly. Yeah, a bit disappointing. So, that's the Curse of Frankenstein. 
Yeah, a really characteristically odd adventure game book by J.H. Brennan. I'll be back with my closing thoughts in just a moment, but I never for life of me when I picked this up thought that my adventure would come to an end trying to pummel a genie to death at the second time of asking. This is only the second J.H. Brennan book we've covered, but already I get a tremendous sense of his personal ethos when it comes to writing adventure game books. Firstly, rewrites are for cowards. You always stick with the first draft, presumably because you get paid the same regardless of how many times you write the words down. Secondly, genre conventions are for cowards. You might start writing the bleak tale of one man's obsessive search for his monster, but sooner or later you're going to want to put a gnome or a genie or a dragon in it and start liberally sprinkling the text with wittier sides. The important thing is to give in to that temptation immediately. Thirdly, it doesn't matter whether your systems make any sense. If people want good sense, they should go and read a dictionary or something. Relatedly, it doesn't actually matter whether you use the systems or not. The important thing is you came up with them. You can even start off using them and then stop arbitrarily if you get bored or they seem like a lot of work. What J.H. Brennan reliably delivers is something completely unlike anything else, and for that alone, I think he deserves praise. Is The Curse of Frankenstein actually good? I don't think so. But it sort of doesn't matter, because I don't get the impression that good and bad are meaningful considerations when Brennan fires up his typewriter and starts writing down each and every thought in the order that they occur to him. He has a style that is all his own, and I think that's admirable, no matter how hallucinatory and bizarre the end product becomes. He's got a unique voice, and that contrasts with the fighting fantasy approach, but it recognisably comes from the same swamp of inspirations that give British fantasy gaming a famously distinctive tone, one that tends towards surrealism, bathos, cynicism. Now, with fighting fantasy, those elements are often background factors, but with Brennan, they are absolutely front and centre. This book did end up putting a smile on my face, and that isn't always the easiest thing to do. One of the reasons why I don't have a proper job is that I have enduring mental health issues that make it hard for me to sustain long periods of productivity and make it hard for me to regulate my mood in a useful way. Now, when I picked up this book to start playing it, I wasn't in the best frame of mind, been in a bit of a slump for a couple of days, but the genuinely ludicrous end to the adventure really perked me up. Fighting a magic genie in a story allegedly about Frankenstein and his monster, that was lunacy enough, but to have to do it twice raises it to a strange plateau of deranged genius, so I'm never going to throw too much shade at a book that left me in a better mental place than I was when I started. That being said, I do feel like I need to examine some of the elements of this adventure game book with a more critical eye, because what is this podcast about if not me over-analyzing books aimed at ten-year-olds? And there are, being honest, a lot of issues with this book. The central conceit of being able to play it through twice, that's great. There's a lot of content here, and I suspect beating both stories would take quite a decent chunk of time, but the execution doesn't quite work. Brennan has tried to come up with a way to make both tales share 
setting elements by having the location descriptions separate from the action descriptions to avoid presumably the page count from bloating too badly. That seems sensible, but there are some problems. Firstly, it's remarkably easy to lose your place in the action sections while flipping to the front of the book to get at the descriptions because there are loads of action sequences that are very similar. Lots of trudging through the snow and many of those sections sit next to each other in the text so it's all too easy to wind up reading the wrong one when you flip back especially if like me you are dyslexic and not great at keeping numbers straight. There was one occasion where I realised I'd managed to get swapped over to the monster's story somehow and had to ditch quite a bit of audio because it was making even less sense than usual and then I had to try and reconstruct where I had gone wrong which when you're presented with a, a list of almost identical descriptions of a snowy wasteland that's quite tricky. This problem is confounded by the fact that most of the choices you make are simply map directions with very little additional information to cause them to stick in your memory. And it has to be said too that wandering around a featureless expanse of snow is not the most amazing experience in the world regardless of how convoluted the structure is. Mazes are somehow even worse when there aren't any walls. I mean, I suppose you could map it. I suspect that's more or less a necessity if you want to beat the game honestly. But looking away to add something to your map, that's just another chance to lose your place and end up somewhere you shouldn't be. There's a lot here that feels effectively like padding. It's just adding to the word count in the laziest possible way. Give me some landmarks to pick between at least. There's nothing more depressing in an adventure game book than rocking up to your fourth entry in a row where you can go in any direction because you know full well that there will only be one choice that's right. At least in a classic dungeon T-junction, it's a 50-50. Past a certain point, freedom isn't freedom, it's just flailing around at random. It's always been a very difficult balance to strike in an adventure game book, that tension between wanting to give the player a bespoke narrative experience and not wanting to trammel them in a way that's restrictive. This feels too open. Perhaps a hunger or cold mechanic would have added something to the snowy wasteland. Getting more health the longer you spend out in the cold, that just feels weird. Also, and this is a constant bugbear of more open adventure game books, visiting the same location multiple times just feels wrong. Part of it is that J.H. Brennan just likes having a lot of locations. We saw in the Grail Quest book that he came up with a way to explore a whole village by giving us a map with a host of key locations that you could do in any order. And he does that here too at the end when you get to the mysterious city and it works pretty well, just as well as it does in Grail Quest. I think doing something similar at the start with a map of the wasteland and various points of interest would have been a really good idea. We didn't really get to it in my playthrough but there are a few items you really need to find and having your progress blocked and realising you need to wander back out into the snow to blunder around at random until you happen across the right location to search that is crushing. Even more soul destroying is the cul-de-sac at the quartz wall where you have a 50% chance to die in a snowdrift before being rewarded with an impassable mountain 
that for some reason takes up three identically worded sections before forcing you to exit via the same 50% chance of dying in a snowdrift because the author hasn't given any thought to what happens if you do an encounter like that multiple times. And that, given the design, is almost a certainty to happen at some point. It's symptomatic of the haphazard approach to design and shows, I think, a lack of respect to the reader. While I think the self-indulgently funny tone might have landed better when I was 10 than when I'm 42, I think even at the age of 10 I'd have been furious at being thrown into the snowdrift twice, and I think this is a book that could have ended up being flung across the room in a snit. It's not just the layout, the combat system too is a bit of a mess. There's five stats, but two of them, at least two of them, are redundant, because as far as I can tell, the book never makes use of them outside of combat when they're combined with another stat anyway, so why not just use two stats rather than four? And Resolving Combat has the same problem which Grail Quest had in that everyone is roughly the same at fighting. It's only damage and who gets to go first that varies, and the damage is either zero or quite high. So you might as well skip rolling to hit, because that's largely pointless, because it's the same for both of you, and then just have fighters take it in turns to knock lumps off each other by rolling damage, which is kind of the system that the Sagard the Barbarian gamebook used. That way, you'd actually be able to make some kind of sensible assessment of whether you could win the fight or not. The combat also interacts very weirdly with the Psy abilities, especially the Mad Science one, which can win you the most deadly fight or instantly kill you, depending on how you roll. That makes the whole thing feel even more random than it already does and throws any balance out of the window. It's oddly frustrating to feel like you got through an encounter by dumb luck. Maybe not as frustrating as it feels when you get done in by dumb luck, but still it doesn't feel great. Especially when the encounters don't acknowledge the possibility of beating them by mad science. And that's highly immersion breaking. Ultimately then, there's no shortage of ideas in The Curse of Frankenstein, and it definitely holds the award for the oddest game book that I've played so far. But it's also clear that not that much care and attention was actually lavished on it. It has a slapped-together feel which contrasts unfavourably with the better fighting fantasy books, which are often so good at setting a mood and a theme and sticking to it. Nevertheless, J. H. Brennan remains a bizarre and fascinating author of game books. He's never going to win any design awards, and indeed his published RPGs were rather tepidly received, but he marches to the crazy, syncopated beat of his own drum and creates worlds which fizz with complete nonsense. And provided you're happy to accept that, there's a lot to like, a lot to enjoy here. So that's all for this episode. I'll be back hopefully very soon when I'll be dusting off my very best pirate voice as we set sail upon the seas of blood. I hope you'll join me then. Thanks very much for listening and until next time, take care.